The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and in these times when so much is uncertain and surprising and novel, I wanted to share with you today various things about English that are just unexpected. I want to give you a carefully chosen grab bag, if there's a such thing, of things that have always tickled me as who to thunk it, just odd things in English, things that have origins that you would never expect, things that show you what a randomness language is. And of course, all of this ends up going back to my endless lesson that you can't say that some way that people are speaking or something about some language is somehow bad or that it shouldn't have happened because so much of the way the language is now is based on random changes from a very long time ago. And if we don't wish we were still speaking Old English, then what problem could we possibly have with this stage of English that we're speaking now, which surely will be looked upon by some people in even the near future as somehow better than the way English is then. It's all so arbitrary. The reason that linguists feel that way is partly because of the kinds of things that I want to get us into. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What am I talking about? I'm talking about some of the most random things, things you wouldn't think of as novelties but are. So, for example, if I may, notice that there is an O suffix in English that is often used in mockery. And the example that probably would come first to most people's minds is fatso. So there's the word fat, and then you say fatso. And if you think about it, that O is a general thing that you learn about English. And so somebody being drunk in the past was stinko. So not only did they stink, but they're a stinko. Or somebody is a bozo, etc. You don't think of that as grammar, but it actually is. If you were going to do a list of the suffixes of English, then that O would be a kind of dismissive appellation, if you wanted to call it that. But you know what? That does not go back to Old English. Nobody in Old English, or let's say Middle English, was saying, oh, thou navo, or something like that. That just wasn't part of it. They had other ways of making fun of each other. That O suffix actually is relatively recent, and it's one of those things that has a very specific origin. Often when people ask where something comes from, they're waiting for a kind of just-so story. That started with one Irishman who did that sort of etymology. Those are almost never real. It's never some one king who said something. But in this case, the O suffix really does come from something very specific. We've got to go way, way back into the annals of ancient American comic strips, the kinds that are almost never fun to read now. The comic strip, as we know, it starts at the end of the 19th century. And, of course, there are fans of the form, but goodness, humor changes. And you'll read this beautifully rendered color drawing with all of this verbiage and 
all of these pretty colors, and the person is clearly a highly trained artist, and almost nothing that goes on is remotely amusing by today's standards. But there is history in such things, and as such, I have always been a fan of ancient comic strips, partly because I find them exotic, and partly, especially these days, because sometimes the only way you're going to learn about certain aspects of how we got here from there is to deal with, you know, the yellow kid and the cats and jabber kids, where you actually get hints of how Americans actually spoke when they didn't think anybody was listening. And so, for example, the O suffix, it goes back to 1904. It's very specific. There was a well-respected comic strip artist named Gus Mauger. His name hasn't really come down to us the way some few comic strip artists such as George Harriman, you know, he was black, that's a crazy cat, was actually created by somebody who, by our modern classification, was a colored person from New Orleans. I highly recommend a bio of him that came out a few years ago. In any case, we, we know about George Harriman, we might know about Richard Out. Cult, but we don't hear about Gus Mauger and ancient comics fans. Yes, actually, it was Mauger and not Mauger, spelled Mauger. Gus Mauger had this famous comic strip that was named, basically named Nako the Monk. And Nako was in like knocking on a door, Nako. And Monk was that the strip was all these monkeys who wore clothes, and that was apparently considered very funny. And in the slang of the day, they were called monks. And so, Nako was one of the monks, but the big joke in this strip was that all of the characters had this O appended to their names. So frankly, <laughs> this stuff does not stand the test of time. I do not recommend this strip. But for example, one character was named not Bonehead, but Boneheado. <laughs> there was Brago, Cold Feet O. <laughs> the Gaslight Era was not witty. There was Forgetto, Joko, then there was this Nako, there was Rhymo because he walked around sprouting these rhymes, there was Sherlocko, you can guess what he was like, Typewriter, and so on. So there are all these O's. That was considered very funny. Now, of course, it's not that no English words ended in O before, but what we're talking about is appending the O suffix to some pre-existing word. So people knew about the dodo bird from Madagascar, but dodo wasn't based on some other word. Dodo was just a word of its own. Or actually, dipso for dipsomaniac and alcoholic, that goes back to 1880, but that's a shortening of the word dipsomaniac. You shorten it to dipso, just like in the mid-20th century you talked about somebody being schizo, for schizophrenic, or today we've got, you know, porno. You know, Zach and Miri make a porno. That's one thing, but it's another thing to add the O to some other word that's just minding its business. So, for example, the Marx Brothers, Groucho, Chico, yes, I'll get to that in a second, Harpo, and Gummo, and Zeppo. What are those O names? That was something that they got from Nako the Monk. That was considered very funny, and in the teens, when the the people we would soon know as the Marx Brothers were banging around in relative anonymity in vaudeville. At first, they weren't going by those names on stage. They were the Marx Brothers. But at one point, apparently it was during a card game, somebody decided to give them names based on this Nako joke. And next thing you knew, you had Groucho, because he was kind of grouchy, ha ha ha. Harpo, because he played the harp. If you think about it, that's not very witty. It's based on this witlessness of the era. You play the harp, well, then you're the Harpo. That's as bad as typewriter in the strip. 
And then Gummo, I forget what that was. Zeppo, I don't remember either. But it isn't Chico Marx, as you'd think, despite the fact that he had this Italian persona. But then Chico, is that Italian? It's Chico. And Marx Brothers obsessives will always say, well, remember, it's Chico. And the reason that it was Chico is because he did have a skirt-chasing tendency. He was always in trouble with the ladies. And so the idea was, well, you like chicks, so you're Chico. <laughs> and so that's where those names came from. So it was a thing. It wasn't something that would have been done before the aughts or the teens. And so when you look at words like this, you notice that they only go so far back. So getting blotto, like for being drunk, like you're blotting up the liquor. Blotto, 1917. Bozo is 1920. Getting stinko, that's 1924. Nobody was talking about getting stinko in 1880 because that's not the way you would have expressed that sentiment. They had other ways of saying it. And if I may, fatso is relatively new. As far as one knows, nobody in 1910 was being called Fatso. Fatso only goes back to 1944, and it's based on this pattern, which hadn't existed before. Now, for better or for worse, mostly worse, there were slang names for people who were overweight before, but it's interesting, you barely have to peel back the layers to see that Fatso was new and that there were other ways before that strike you as odd until you realize that the O suffix is a newish thing. My mother, for example, would talk about how she, she grew up in Atlanta in the 40s, and one of her family names was Fat, the idea being that she was overweight. And the funny thing is, I'm not aware of any time when she was, but for some reason there were people who called her Fat. And I'm thinking, wouldn't it have been Fat so? And certainly not just Fat. That sounded oddly short to me by the time I heard it in the 70s, but actually it was common. And so, for example, Laurel and Hardy, think of the, the silent and then sound film comedians. Oliver Hardy w was the, the large one, and he was recounting in the 1950s when they started showing the shorts on TV and the two of them became famous again, Oliver Hardy said, a year ago, nobody knew us. When I went up to the corner grocery, some kid would say, get out of the way, fat. Now they stop and say, you're Oliver Hardy, aren't you? Can I have your autograph? So once again, we wouldn't hear anybody called fat today. But he's talking about in the 1940s when, if I may, the word fat so was new. Now, back in the day, there was fat tea. And so some of you may think, if we're talking about silent films, Fatty Arbuckle, and he was one of a few people with names like that. There was one who died young, worked for Universal, named Fatty Voss, for example, but not Fatso Voss. Whereas for Midnight Cowboy, 1969, you have Ratso Rizzo. Notice, not Ratty, not Rizzo the Rat, Ratso Rizzo. Well, forced as a name, but it's very post-early 20th century. So that suffix is something relatively new. My youngest daughter, she's now five. I can tell she's going to have a kind of a scampish way of talking. She's going to have a certain sarcasm. Don't know where she gets that. But lately she's been calling me dado. Now nobody says dado, but you can tell she's internalized this suffix. She wouldn't be calling me that in 1869. She probably wouldn't be calling me that in 1908 because she wouldn't know anything about Nako the monk. Whereas, I remember, back in the late 70s, there was a girl in seventh grade, 
And the boys used to call her, instead of her given name, Stephanie, they would say, hey, Stefo, and that was their stab at flirtation at that age. Stefo. Well, that was very 20th century. A girl named Stephanie, for one thing, that wouldn't have been her name in 1869, but if it was, they wouldn't have called her Stefo. They would have called her something else. So, in any case, yeah, we're getting to the point where we need a bit of music. And, you know, a perfect example here is something that I've used before, the musical Top Banana from 1951, which is basically Phil Silver's Bilko show as a musical with the characters a little different. That same atmosphere set to really fun music. And I should say that the cast album of this, which is easily available and in really nice sound, especially for 1951, or there was a movie of it practically on stage where you can get a good sense of it, is a trove of mid-20th century slang and language. In any case, this is the the big number before the first act curtain. This is Meet Miss Blendo. The plot is about advertising. But this gives you a sense of the use of this suffix on that word and others. So here is Phil Silvers and company about to close out the first act with Meet Miss Blendo. Hey fellas, you want to meet a chick who's all washed up? Meet Miss Blendo. Hi! Who sparkles like a snow-white china cup? Miss Blendo Love led her down the garden path And then gave her a bubble bath Is this the face that you see everywhere? Yes, yes, yes Who's in your bathroom and your hairdo? Who does things does, doesn't dare to sweet and tender? Dear Miss Blendo, meet the rest Photographers in each magazine meet Miss Blendo. Who's smiling on the television screen meet Miss Blendo. There's not a single sink or john that her facsimile ain't on. Is this the face that launched a thousand chips? Yes, yes, yes. We'll have a super duper hooper. Dates with Gable. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Something else, where pronouns can come from. They're these little faceless words that often trace back to other faceless words, you know, I, you, he, we. But there are times when a pronoun will come from some of the most unexpected places, and that is happening in Black English. And I want to just share this, and it's going to be awkward because I have neither the voice nor the persona to render these sentences the way they should be. So you're just going to have to put up with me sounding just as bad as I did trying for Cantonese in the last episode. But to tell you the truth, Black English is developing new first-person singular pronouns, and they're distinguished by gender, of all things. And so there are certain people who are 
listening to the language and they see it just falling to pieces. Although I'm happy to say that over the past several years, that seems to be lessening. But still, there's a kind of person who just hears mess. Whereas you can walk around and see all sorts of the funnest new things happening, especially if you'd cock your ear to, frankly, the vulgar. For example, here goes, here is a sentence of modern black English. A nigga haven't made myself breakfast yet. I'm going to say it again. A nigga haven't made myself breakfast yet. Notice that the idea is not that somebody else is making me breakfast. It's a nigga haven't made myself breakfast yet. That means I haven't made myself breakfast yet, where a nigga is I. Now, this is a weird sentence. I mean, think about it. If we were talking about some other if I may, nigga making somebody breakfast, then it would be a nigga haven't made, hasn't made me breakfast yet. But instead, it's haven't made myself. So it means that of all things, this a nigga is I. Now, where that comes from is first, you'll say something like, come on, help a nigga out. And what you mean is help me out, but you're deflecting it a little bit. It's a kind of a softener. It's a kind of politeness, the sort of thing that I talked about in a show some episodes back. But if you can use it to mean me, well, then language is always changing and people are always creative. Why not use it to mean I? And when someone uses it this way, they're not being cute. This isn't meant as funny. You can hear it all the time. I have listened and heard this on the street. It is definitely real. Here is my favorite sentence of this in print. Listen closely because it can be hard to wrap your ear around this if you're not familiar with what this means now. Ever since a nigga taught myself how to roll, I've smoked every day. Notice, not ever since some person taught me how to roll my own, but ever since a nigga taught myself how to roll, I've smoked every day. A nigga means I. So you never know where pronouns are going to come from. In Spanish, usted, the polite form for you, that originally was vuestra merced, your, in the plural, mercy. So y'all's mercy. And so y'all's mercy now is just a polite term for you. And sometimes usted is just pronounced te. And so from something that began as this elaborate term of referring to somebody as two people as a form of rather perverted respect has now come down from vuestra merced to te. That's where a pronoun can come from. Well, in Black English, you've got this pronoun, a nigga, a word that started as meaning black, as in niger in Latin. Then it becomes a slur, as in what we now know as the N-word. The slur then becomes a term of affection that you use with someone else. We're all familiar with that. And then it becomes a first-person pronoun. Who would have known that a word that people were using to mean black in ancient Rome would come to be used as the word for I by descendants of African slaves in a country called the United States of America that they had never heard of? And so, like I'm saying, I know how stupid I sound saying that. It's not a pronoun that I use. I would not say something like, a nigga's favorite 30s movie is Dinner at Eight. It's not me, but I think you get the point. It is the linguists Taylor Jones and Christopher Hall who put me onto this in some articles that they wrote, and I find it a genius analysis. And then you listen and you hear it everywhere. But actually, there's more. And so let's take, let's take Ms. B, Cardi for the record. And so Cardi B, the charismatic performer, 
wrote something recently on the Instagram. I don't actually say the Instagram like Bernie Sanders says the YouTube. It just sounds funny. So on the Instagram, Cardi B put something about, frankly, it was about coronavirus. And she said, I ain't going to front. A bitch is scared. Shit got me panicking. I ain't going to front. A bitch is scared. Shit got me panicking. Once again, she's not saying that, if I may use the word in reference, she's not saying that some unspecified bitch is afraid. When she says, I ain't going to front, a bitch is scared, she means herself. She's saying that she's scared, and she's got a little picture. Shit got me panicking. So what this means is that there's a gender distinction here. So in the third person singular, English has had always he versus she. But I doesn't have that distinction. But in good, solid, up-to-the-minute black English, I for a man is a nigga. I for a woman is a bitch. And I'm sorry to have to keep saying those words, but there is articulateness and complexity in this. And so a nigger made myself a sandwich. I ain't going to front. A bitch is scared. That makes black English in this way more complex than standard English and frankly, just more interesting. So you never know where pronouns are going to come from. Bitch, of course, starts out as a word for female dog, and then it becomes an affectionate, self-caressing word for I. Who would know? In any case, I don't think I have a song for a bitch is scared, but I must admit that with um, Meet Miss Blendo, there's a little bit of show musicus interrupt us there. This is one of my favorite cuts because it really does bring down the first act curtain and the album is so well produced that you can hear it, you can feel it, you feel like you're at a show in 1951. So let's just hear Meet Miss Blendo play out because it really does feel like you are at the theater, which right now one cannot be because Broadway is closed. And by the way, for those of you who know what a whiskey tenor line is, it's going to be kind of like, meet the world. The person doing that, if you listen closely, that's Rose Marie. She was in this. And so Sally from the Dick Van Dyke Show, this is her musical theater career. And listen to this curtain going down. It puts the hairs that don't exist on the back of my neck up on end every time. Meet Miss Blendo again. Dates with Gable and with Cooper. Crescendo, dear Miss Blendo. doesn't work, you creeps are out of a job. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay, something else. Long time no see. You hear it all the time. You probably say it. Oh, long time no see, Dan. 
or something like that. Long time no see. What is that? Well, we know that it's not proper English. You know, you're supposed to say, well, I haven't seen you for such a long time. So long time no see is very telegraphic. Really, you feel like you're imitating some kind of foreigner. And many people have traced long time no see to racism, which is completely understandable. The idea is that someone was imitating either a Native American or a Chinese person saying, I haven't seen you for a long time in their understandably non-native and therefore imperfect English, and they were being made fun of. And that is the way so many things do emerge, that it's natural to suppose that long time no see started out as a jape, as making fun of somebody. But, you know, actually, it was something a little quirkier than that. Long time no see. It's not from Native Americans specifically. If you look at the sources, it actually originally traces to how people imagined Chinese people saying, I haven't seen you for a long time. But the thing is, it wasn't purely imagination because Chinese people really did say that. And the way they said it was not just in speaking English randomly, but it was from something very specific, a specific linguistic phenomenon called Chinese Pidgin English. And this is something that began as far back as the 1600s, but flowered in the 1700s and 1800s. And what happened was that when English-speaking traders went to China, they would go into the ports, the Chinese did not want the English people coming in and screwing things up. Whatever for, what kind of sense does that make? Didn't want them coming in. And for a long time, they didn't. So the idea was, you will trade, we will interact as much as is necessary, then you please just go home. Now, you know that the English sailors were certainly not going to learn any damn Cantonese. Remember me last time. So the way that interactions went was that the Chinese people learned just as much English as they needed to deal with these people. So they weren't trying to learn English. They didn't want to know English. They didn't want to say, I haven't seen you for a long time. They wanted to say just enough to trade with these people, make dresses for the women who they brought there, and then send them on their way with a goodbye. This Chinese pidgin English is documented. And we know how it went. And it wasn't just English randomly spoken badly. It actually conventionalized around certain set phrases, around fragments of what you might even call grammar. You had to learn Chinese pidgin English. It wasn't a real language. It was kind of half of a language. But there was a way that this was spoken. And the way that you said, haven't seen you for a long time, really was long time no see. And it made perfect sense because that's exactly the way you would put it in Chinese. So even today, in Mandarin, you would say, and that's, it's long, not meat. And so, that would be long time, no see. And so it's perfectly natural that you would say long time, no see. Even it being four things kind of divided into two pairs, boom, 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 boom. That's called a cheng yu in Chinese, and that is a crucial part of expressing yourself in the Chinese languages. It's one of the harder things because you think you're getting in there, but then it turns out that there are thousands of these boom, 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 boom idioms that people use all the time that don't always make immediate sense, especially if you don't happen to be Chinese and know about old Chinese things, but you have to know them. So, for example, one way to say to improve unnecessarily, you know, you want to have a way of saying that, and you could say to improve in a not necessary way, but an artful way of saying it is draw snake, add foot, which is neat because snakes don't 
have feet. And so you say, or to deliberately misrepresent. You have to have a way of saying that. One way they say that is to call a deer a horse. And so, to call a deer a horse. You know what? There is something about this long time no see business that gets me thinking of one of my very favorite 70s pop songs. And it's by Wings. It was called Let Em In. It was a big hit back in its day. It actually is still heard on PA systems. Sometimes today you can be at a supermarket and you'll hear it. I'm not sure who they're thinking recognizes it, but I, I don't know. I remember it from when I was about seven years old. It's a very sweet little song and it takes its time. I can pretend that I'm doing it because the Chinese wouldn't let them in and that was good for them. And this song is called Let Them In, but it, it's nothing like that. It's just a very pretty song that reminds me of being seven or eight. It's kind of goofy. It's minor genius. Let's have a little bit of Let Them In before we go on to our next weird thing in English. Someone knocking at the door. Somebody ringing the bell. Someone's knocking at the door. Somebody's ringing the bell. Do me a favor. Open the door. And let them in. Ooh, yeah. Someone's knocking at the door. Somebody's ringing the bell. Someone's knocking at the door. Somebody's ringing the bell. Do me a favor. Open the door, I let them in. Yeah, let in. Did you ever notice how often we use as for that? What I mean is things like somebody saying, well, I don't know as I do. Now, you might not say it, but you've heard people say it. And you might think of it as a little rural and a little antique and it is, but still there are people who say it today. I don't know as I do. And you might think, well, isn't it? I don't know that I do. But you've heard people say, I don't know as I do. And it wasn't only in old movies and especially, think about seeing as this is the only way to do it, such as seeing as the only way to record Lexicon Valley today is to sit in my bedroom closet. Seeing as. Now I could say seeing that the only way to do this is to sit surrounded by my suit jackets and various discarded toys, but you could say seeing as, and a lot of people do say seeing as. Or even think about this. I like the same perfume that she does. I think that's what I would say. But then the person next door would say, I like the same perfume as she does. What is that? What is this as for that? Well, the truth is, it's how the language wants to go, but it means that you have this usage of as that began as that. What happens is that that contracts to at. I don't know that I do. I don't know what I do. But then it's a little weird because there already is a word at and it's very prominent and that doesn't quite make sense. And so as time goes by, you think, well, as would make a kind of sense because as is about being like things, being akin to things. So I don't know, as I do, feels like one way to get from one part of the sentence to another. At least it seems better than I don't know at I do, which makes no sense at all. At least you could imagine saying as I do for other reasons. So next thing you know, there's this gradual subconscious decision where you say, seeing that he's over there, seeing that he's over there, 
seeing as he's over there, and there you go. So you have that transition. And yes, this is a very common construction. You see it in a lot of places. Dickens, it can almost throw you, especially in the more vernacular characters. And so, for example, poor little Joe. And I've never been sure why Joe isn't spelled with the E. It's J-O. And so for a minute you think you're in Little Women, but no, Joe is a little boy. And he's always saying, oh, well, I have to come up with a voice <laughs> for Joe. Nobody would ever ask me to do an audiobook of Bleak House. I'm just going to make up bad Cockney. That's the closest I can get. But he'll say something like, I don't know as I do, sir. So it's not, I don't know that I do. I don't know as I do, sir. And Joe has a whole speech. And I remember when I once slogged through Bleak House, I found this one tough until I realized, oh, wait a minute, it's this as for that thing. So the way it went was, Thou what's left, Mr. Snagsby, says Joe, out of a sovereign, a sovereign, a coin, out of a sovereign as was given me by a lady in a whale as said she was a servant and has come to my crossing one night and asked to be showed this here house. So out of a sovereign as was given me by that was given to me by as was given me by a lady in a whale as said she was a servant, that said she was a servant, as said she was a servant, and it's come to my crossing, and that came to my crossing one night, one night, and asked to be showed this ear house, and the house what him, as you give the writing to, died at. And I remember reading that and thinking, what the fuck is this house and the give and the writing? Okay, so, this ear house, this here house, and the house, the house, what him, as you give the writing to, died at. What him that he that you gave the writing to died at. What him as you give the writing to died at. And the burying ground, what he's buried in. And the burying ground that he's buried in. (laughs) Sorry, folks, but that's kind of the way that kid would have sounded. In any case, that's the that as as. So this goes way back to merry old England. Nothing was very merry for poor Joe, but merry old England. And then it comes over to America. One of the most American novels ever written was written by Sinclair Lewis. I recommend him if you want some anthropology of the 20s and 30s. And not King's Blood Royal, which gets around a lot these days because it was about race. That's good, but he really hit his stride with his 20s and 30s ones. Babbitt, Main Street, Arrowsmith actually sucks. But then Elmer Gantry, you have to get through that one. He's a very interesting writer and very anthropological. Babbitt is what teaches you about America circa 1920. And Babbitt is a middle-aged guy. Back then, middle-aged was like 28. But he's a middle-aged guy. And he's thinking about messing around with a certain lady. And there's a scene where it goes like this. I think that lady's going to have to have the seductress voice. So, oh, do you like music, Mr. Babbitt? <laughs> you bet I do. Only I don't know as I care so much for all this classical stuff. So, wait a minute. <laughs> you bet I do. Only I don't know as I care so... I don't know as I care so much. Well, wait a minute, Mr. Babbitt. Why not? I don't know that I care so much. But Sinclair Lewis characters often have that as, I don't know as I care so much for all this classical stuff. Just to let you know how it goes on. They're they're in a car. Oh, I do. I just love Chopin and all those. Do you honest? Well, of course. I go to lots of these highbrow concerts, but I do like a good jazz orchestra right up on its toes with the fellow that plays the bass fiddle, spinning it around and beating it up with the bow. 
The movie, if you must sit through it, has Guy Kibbe as Babbitt. That's who you should imagine, and that's who I'm kind of trying to do. The woman, by the way, in the novel, her name is Tannis Judique. Tannis Judique must have talked like this. In any case, you have that as. Or how about something that people actually care about? What about Dirty Harry? What about Clint Eastwood? Watch this scene. Well, you can't see it. And so let's listen to a bit of this scene where he uses being as, as opposed to being that. Uh, if you quote this scene, you're using this that as as, because it's being as. Listen. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But Ian, this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? So this is that kind of thing, where one thing becomes another, and that's the way language goes. So, for example, if you'd have been there, if you'd have seen it. Don't worry, I'm not going to play the thing from Chicago that I seem to play every other show. But if you think about it, duh has become, and not like a duh, but the duh as in you duh been there, you duh seen it. So you is a word, been, and there are two words. Well, there's this word in between, duh. If you duh seen it, a person new to the language would hear it that way. Duh is a marker of the hypothetical. And this duh started from what began as would and have. To wit, it began as what used to be the past tense of want, it wasn't wanted, it was would. That's why you can even now say, if you want to be a little pretentious, and he would do as he would, as in wanted. Plus the word for to possess, have. So would and have come together to become to. And so if you'd have been there, if you'd have seen it. It's just, it's amazing. Or if you think that word is of in your heart of hearts, if you'd have been there, and it kind of is, that it's just another one of these collisions. And so you have of, which started out meaning what of means, taking on this whole new other meaning just because other stuff started sounding like it. These these kind of invasions. That's that and as. And so that ends up becoming one more facet of asness. It's just amazing how language changes. Think about, for example, I started this out, for example, with, did you ever notice, think about that, did you ever notice, that's what I said slowly, did you ever notice, well, what's j? The j is a combination of did and you, of course, but if nobody knows from did or you, and they're just a Martian listening and trying to figure out how English works, and they happen to be sitting behind me, and I say to somebody, did you ever notice, well, then to them, j is this little consonant that means both you and put something in the past. So, jever, notice, that's how language really works. It's only writing that holds us back from being able to embrace it, because writing, for all of its glories, makes it seem like language never changes. Oh, by the way, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are going to say that as from that is something Scandinavian, and you will be quite rightly thinking of things like the word at in Swedish, etc., and so you might think that, well, that ot, which is used in the place where we often use that, must have been the source of this as because the ot goes to us. And, you know, stranger things have happened than to, to su. But in any case, I would like it if it was that, and I would have done this whole section saying, guess what else we got from the Vikings? But it doesn't work because the distribution 
of that use of as in England isn't what you expect if it's a Vikingism. It isn't more common in the North, and in fact, it's less common in the North. It's less common in Scottish. It's less common in Northumberland. So the distribution makes it clear that it's something that happened in English all by itself. This is one thing that those goddamn Vikings did not do. I'm in a closet. And no, I don't mean that kind of closet, despite the music that I sometimes play. I am in one of my bedroom closets because we can't go to the studios, and so we needed to go somewhere with decent sound. I am surrounded by textiles. And you know, there has to be a song about this, and there is one. And it means going back to this Hugh Martin, who I featured last time. And you know, this cut, the vocal style is not for everyone these days. This is an old-fashioned tenor. But for those of you who are music fans, listen to the accidentals in this peculiar song. It is a song called Tiny Room, <laughs> and that's from Look Ma, I'm Dancing, which was Hugh Martin's musical of 1948. The person singing is Bill Shirley, for the record. And just listen to some Tiny Room, because frankly, it's exactly the way I'm feeling, because I am sitting in a really tiny room. Yeah, folks, I know that's a weird song, but in this crisis, that is how I'm feeling, or it reflects how I would like to feel, or whatever. In any case, you can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. You know what I made last week? Gingerbread. Nobody ever makes me gingerbread, and I decided I wanted some gingerbread. And you know, it tasted like God. But kind of wondered, what was the baking soda for? Add this pinch of crap in there, wouldn't it have been just the same? Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I am John McWhorter. <laughs>